It's good to see you guys this weekend as we wrap up our series that we've been calling Seven. We're talking about the seven deadly sins, and we're saying along the series that these are sins that typically uh, we don't deal with in our lives, and we kind of have the attitude, everybody deals with this stuff, you just kind of have to accept it, you know, we're all kind of weak, we all have our shortcomings, but the reality is if we don't deal with these sins, if we don't address these issues in our life, they can prevent us from living the life that God has designed us to live. And if you weren't here with us a few weeks ago when we started the series, you may be wondering uh, where the idea of the seven deadly sins came from because you've checked the Bible, you Googled it. There is no verse in the Bible that talks about the seven deadly sins. And even though you will find each one of these sins addressed in the Bible, you're not going to find a verse or a passage that talks about the seven deadly sins. And that's because this was actually a list that was compiled by a group, of, a group of theologians back in the Middle Ages. And believe it or not, when they put this list together, uh, the sin of lo uh, sloth or laziness, uh, the one that we're looking at this weekend, actually was the first on the original list. And so I know what you're thinking, like, Mike, if it was first, why didn't you address it first? Why, is it, why, why are we finishing the series with this one? And, and I have an explanation. First of all, of all the deadly sins, this is probably the hardest one to address for me. It's the hardest one to prepare for. And, and that's why I saved it for last. See, this is what I'm thinking. At my age, seven weeks, I could be dead and I not even have to do this. You know, Donnie or Chase would have to do this, right? But I made it. But here's the other thing about, you know, this. Uh, slothfulness, I thought, is, is this something we really need to deal with today? I mean, good gracious. Yeah, we know we need to deal with lust. We talked about that last week. We all know we need to deal with anger. And when we talked about anger, it's been cool to hear how many of you have been set free because you finally dealt with it. Uh, we live in a country in a time where we, we have to deal with greed. We have to deal with gluttony. Just look at the statistics in America. Uh, but laziness. In fact, most of us could probably build a case. Hey, we're not slothful. You know, we're not lazy. In fact, we could probably build a case that we're pretty busy. Look at our culture. We have a culture of workaholics. Uh, I've used the statistic before that the average family in America makes 13 commutes today, every day, just getting their kid to all the activities that their kids need to be at. I mean, we are, a, we are a culture, a nation of busy, busy, busy people. So we could probably build the case that we need to be more slothful. We need to be more lazy. We need to be less productive. We need to be less busy. But this weekend, we're going to discover that uh, sloth is actually a sin that may be preventing us from being the people that God has created us and called us to be. And we're going to see this principle in the story about a man, this is interesting, who knew ahead of time that he was going to die. And his name is Hezekiah. He was the king of Judah. It will not take a long time to develop the story. But I got to tell you, this is one of those stories that is going to keep you 
thinking for a while. So if you have your Bible this weekend, turn with me over to 2 Kings chapter 18. Most of you will never find it, so don't even bother. We'll put the verses up on the screen, right? But the real story begins in 2 Kings chapter 16. So let me give you a little bit of background. In 2 Kings 16, the king of Judah was a man named Ahaz. And if you know anything about Ahaz, uh, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, he was a horrible king. For example, there was a time when the Assyrians were threatening to attack Jerusalem. And the way uh, Ahaz dealt with it was he went and stole all the gold and all the silver out of God's temple. And he bribed the Assyrians not to attack, uh, to attack. but that's Hezekiah's father. That was his role model. And if you, if you study him, you find out he, was, he had zero character. He would do whatever was necessary to save his hide. But eventually, like all of us, Ahaz died. And when he died, his son Hezekiah became the new king of Judah. You pick up the story, 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 3, tells us what his reign was like. And it says, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. And that's a little confusing because I just said that his father was Ahaz, but now he refers to David. But the word father there could also, and maybe is translated in your Bible, ancestor. And so it's more of a lineage thing. And what it's saying is Hezekiah was more like David than he was like his own father. And he tells us why, if you go on and read, it says, he removed the high places, he smashed the sacred stones, he cut down the Asherah poles. These were all elements of worship that his father Ahaz had put in place. So we learned right away that Hezekiah was a remarkable young man. I mean, the minute he becomes king, he puts the temple of God back in order. He gets rid of all the false idols. He gets rid of all the idol altars. He restores the sacrifices. He restores worship. And once again, the people of Judah are hearing about the greatness of God. And they're hearing about the greatness of God because of this young godly king named Hezekiah. In fact, Hezekiah was a great man of faith. And there's a really, really cool story in 2 Kings chapter 19. There's a king of Assyria. His name is Sennacherib. What a great name. Anybody ever named their kid Sennacherib, right? You could call him Sin for short. I mean, but anyway, maybe that's why you do it. But anyway, Sennacherib, he takes siege of, uh, 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 he takes Jerusalem by hostage. And the way he does this is he cuts off the water supply that is actually located outside the city by seizing the well, cutting off the water. And so the fresh water can't get into Jerusalem. So basically they are dying of thirst. And while this is going on, Sennacherib, of course, is outside the city wall, hanging out by the well, and he's kind of taunting Hezekiah, taunting the Jewish people from sun up to sundown. And finally, Hezekiah, he has no options. He doesn't know what to do. He's had enough, and he prays in 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 19. Now, Lord our God, deliver us from his hand, and that's a reference to Sennacherib, Deliver us from his hand so that all the kingdoms on earth may know that you alone, Lord, are God. In other words, let them know, God, who, uh, people know who you are, God, and that you don't mess, with, don't mess with us. Don't mess with us. And God's response is, listen, hey, just sit back, Hezekiah. Watch me do my thing. And look what it says in chapter 19, verse 35. That night, the angel of the Lord went out and put to death, look at this, 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, 
there were all the dead bodies. So they walked outside their tents. They, they stretched to take in the new day and they look around and there's 185,000 dead bodies and they can't explain the dead bodies and it freaks them out. And you read in the very next verse that Sennacherib, he ran home basically with his tail tucked between his legs and you never read about him, nor do you ever hear about him again. And at this point in Hezekiah's life, life is good. In fact, I think that his approval rating, even on CNN, and I don't even think they like God, right? But even on CNN, I think his approval rating was off the charts, right? But out of the blue, out of the blue, you get to chapter 20, verse one. And it says, in those days, Hezekiah became ill. It was at the point of death. The prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, went to him and said, this is what the Lord says, put your house in order because you are going to die. You will not recover. Now, a lot of us have probably had close brushes with death. Maybe you almost were in an auto accident and you realize, wow, that could have been it, right? You ever had one of those? Uh, one time I got, I got, I got stuck on a, a piece of a steak stuck in my throat at Ray's. And I was trying to get Laura to save me. And later on that night, she did give me the Heimlich, but I, I thought about four in the morning, the next morning, I thought she didn't really have her heart in it. It made me worried me a little bit, right? But we've all, we've all had those close brushes with death and I can remember the lights kind of going out and I'm thinking, this is it, this is gonna be embarrassing, right? And, and some of you men, see, you had a close brush with death this past week. I mean, your life flashed before your eyes because you didn't show up for Valentine's. So you dropped the ball on Valentine's, right? In fact, I have a guy on staff and he told me that he forgot to tell his wife happy Valentine's. So when he got to work, he called her and said, hey, honey, happy Valentine's. She said, too late, click right there. See, 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 see right there, his life flashes before his eyes. By the way, hey, listen, uh, hey, relationships are difficult. And marriages are difficult. And that's why I'm excited uh, later on this spring, I'm gonna do a series uh, uh, based on a book I'm writing on marriage and family. And, and there's a lot I wanna talk about. But man, here's the cool thing. And let me just talk to the men for a second, ladies. You can check out and check the Duke State score or something. But uh, the, the cool thing is this. Uh, there's a lot of things I've learned being married 40 years that can save you those near-death experiences. Because what, your wife's gonna ask you questions that you, you don't know how to answer. I mean, it's a lose-lose situation. You don't know what to do because it's gonna be bad either way. For example, as your wife, you're just watching a movie with her, you're minding your own business, you're happy as you, and all of a sudden your wife will say, hey, honey, she's pretty, isn't she? Yeah. You think she's prettier than I am? Boom, right there, what do you do? What do you do? I mean, you could, you could die if you don't answer that question. Right Now, I have figured out how you answer questions like that. Man, I'll just pass on my knowledge. This is the answer, no. And then immediately leave the room, okay? Just get out of the room as quick as you can, okay? Don't say, yeah, honey, she's prettier, but you have a better personality, or you're still pretty for your age. None of that will matter. Just say, no, leave the room, okay? Here's another one. Your wife's gonna walk in one day. You're watching CNN, you're minding your own business, right? And she's gonna drop this bomb on you. She's gonna have a brand new dress on. She's gonna have the tags hanging from it. She's going to say, honey, does this dress make my butt look big? She's, I promise you that is going to happen. This is the answer. No. And immediately leave the house. Don't just get out of it. Leave the house. Get in the car and go somewhere. See, a, a wrong answer would be, no, honey, your, your, your butt makes your butt look big. See, that would not, that would not be a good. Or how about this one? I've seen it bigger. See, you'll mean that as a compliment, but I promise you, she's not going to take it that way. Okay? See, so by what happens, you get in those situations and you think, it's over. Your life flashes before your eyes. And I'm sure it was the same thing with Hezekiah when he heard, your days are numbered. And so you can imagine he's devastated. He's no different than we are. And he prays, he pleads, he bargains, you know, he weeps, he begs. And I think God's finally like, well, if you're going to be a big ball baby about it, I'll give you 15 more years. 
In fact, to prove that I'm going to give you 15 more years, this is what God says. I'm going to back up the sun. I'm going to back up the sun 10 steps. Literally, the word is degrees on the temple stairs. It's an equivalent of about an hour. I'm going to back up the sun for an hour to prove to you my point that you can trust me, that I'm gonna let you live for 15 more years. So a couple of numbers there that I want you to remember, the number 10, the number 15, because they're gonna come into play in just a minute. So God goes through with, right? And when Hezekiah realizes that God has given him this reprieve, I'm telling you, he hits the ground running. This is what he's thinking. I got a little bit of time, I got a little bit of opportunity, and there are three things if you study the life of Hezekiah that marked his legacy. First of all, Hezekiah took on a project that was related to the preservation of the Old Testament. Now remember, this is back in the days before printing presses. This is back in the days before desktop publishing. You couldn't just write a book and send it off to Amazon. Uh, the, the, the scriptures were handwritten and they were passed on hand by hand. And it required a group of scholars to do this meticulous transcribing work of re writing the scriptures, doing it by hand, making sure that it was done accurately, that everything was the way it was supposed to be. And Hezekiah oversaw this group. And there's only one place in the Bible where they're mentioned, Proverbs 25, verse one. It says, these are more Proverbs of Solomon compiled by the men of Hezekiah, there's our guy, king of Judah. And what it's saying is this, these Proverbs in Proverbs 25 and the Proverbs that follow were translated under Hezekiah's watchful eye. And there's actually places, if you could read the Hebrew text, that this happens all the way through the Old Testament. And we know that because there's a very curious signature that appears at the, at the end of a number of Old Testament books. Actually, it's not a signature. It's three Hebrews letter, Heth, Zion, and Kof. And they correspond to our English letters, H, Z, and K. In other words, that is how Hezekiah, once he proofread what had been transcribed, once he knew it was accurate, he would sign off by putting his initials, H, Z, and K. It was, like, it was like the good housekeeping seal of approval. It's like, you can trust what's being passed on to you. You can trust that this is God's original word. But Hezekiah wasn't finished. In fact, what grabbed my attention is a statement that Hezekiah made in Isaiah chapter 38, verse 20. He said this, the Lord will save me. This is after God has said, I'm going to give you 15 more years. And we will sing with stringed instruments all the days of our lives in the temple of the Lord. But there aren't any songs here. There is no poetry here. So where are the songs? What's the significance of the songs? But when you think about songs in the Bible, what book do you think about? You think about the book of what? It's the book of Psalms, right? So it's interesting. If you go to the book of Psalms, tucked away in the book of Psalms is a cluster of 15 Psalms, and they're known as the Ascent Psalms. In other words, the sun ascended, it backed up. So they're, they're found in Psalm 20 through Psalm 134. David's connected the four of the Psalms. Solomon's connected to one of the Psalms, but the other 10 are from Hezekiah. And again, why is that significant? Well, 10, the number of stairs or number of degrees that the sun backed up on the temple steps. 15, the number of years that God added to Hezekiah's life. And so think about it. Hezekiah used those 15 extra years that God gave him to write 10 Psalms that now are a part of the Bible. They're now a part of God's recorded word. They are a part of his legacy. But that's not all. You remember the well that Sennacherib choked off from outside the city? 
Let me show you one more thing about Hezekiah. Second Chronicles chapter 32, verse 30. It was Hezekiah who blocked the upper outlet of the Gihon Spring and channeled the water down the west side of the city of David. And notice what it says. He succeeded in everything he undertook. Let me tell you what that's saying. Hezekiah decided, hey, that's never gonna happen to us again. So he dug a spring from the, from, from, from the Gihon Spring under the city wall of Jerusalem into the city to make sure that they could never be put under seas again by somebody taking over the well. And just so you know, that tunnel was cut through solid rock. It's 1,700 feet long, which is the equivalent of almost six football fields. And every time I take a trip to Jerusalem, we actually crawl down some steps and I'll show you, we walk through that tunnel that was carved out by Hezekiah. You can still see the chisel marks, but this is what's amazing about it. You want to talk about technology. Hezekiah had two groups of men. One started at the Gihon Springs, one started inside the city of the Jerusalem, inside the walls, and they began to dig toward each other. And they dug for the length of six football fields and they met up in the middle and one was less than a quarter of an inch lower than the other. No technology, no GPS. It is absolutely amazing. But my point is this, when Hezekiah realized that his time on this earth was limited, this is what happened. He made the necessary adjustments to maximize his usefulness to God. He's like, whoa, I got a reprieve. I got 15 years. I got a little bit of time. I got a little bit of opportunity. What am I going to do? How am I going to use it? And it's interesting. I think one of the most fascinating and maybe frustrating subjects that we have to address from time to time is a little four letter word, and it is time. And this is what's interesting. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how little money you have. We all have the same amount of time. We all have 86,400 seconds that God gives us every day, time. Let me give you a definition of time. It's a system of measuring duration. It's the period during which something exists or happens. So think about it, whether we are awake or we are asleep, time is a duration in which things happen. But why are we so protective of our time? Why are we so irritated and inconvenienced when a solicitor rings our doorbell? Why are we so inconvenienced when our phone rings and we look, it was one of those 866 numbers and we know that it's somebody telling us the IRS is after us, or our credit card, you know, something's going on, right? And we know that it's a hoax. Why is that? Here's another question. Why would we rather give people our money than give them our time? You ever dealt with people and you're like, just get to the bottom line because I would rather give you $40 than, than have to listen to your story, right? We would rather do that, right? And I'll tell you why. You can always make more money. You can't make more time. I mean, when you think about it, life's like a coin. You can spend it any way you want it, but once you spend it, you can only spend it once. So my point is simply this. Every day, think about this, every day. Every day God gives us 86,400 seconds and we can use those seconds any way we want. We don't deserve them. We don't earn them. They're a gift that God gives us. But understand, along with this gift, if you are a Christian, if you've responded to the gospel, if you are a child of God, along with this gift of time should come a sense of urgency. Because it really doesn't matter in the big scheme of things, in the scheme of the universe, 
whether you live to be 75, 80, 85, 90, or 100, you know what? You still only have a little bit of time. You still only have a little bit of opportunity. James says our life's like a vapor. It's here, it's gone. I mean, it's like watching a tea kettle boil and you see the steam that comes out of it and, and it's there for a second, but then all of a sudden it's gone. And so if we want to experience the life that God intended for each of us to experience as Christians, we've got to deal with this issue of our time and how we use our time. And I say that because, see, my guess is that for most of us listening, regardless of what campus you're at, the danger in our life isn't that we're going to deny our faith. That's probably not going to be the issue. The big danger in our life is not that we're going to turn our back on God and begin to worship Satan and sacrifice babies. That's probably not what's going to happen. The danger that most of us face as Christians is that we will get so busy. We get so distracted with all the stuff that's going on in our lives, with all the stuff that's going on at work, with all the stuff that's going on with our kids, with all the stuff that's going on in our neighborhoods, that we become mediocre versions of what God intended us to become. And as a result, we end up missing God's plan and we end up missing God's destiny and we end up missing God's best for our life. But the reality is this, we have 168 hours a week available to make a difference in the world. And all, although everything in our world and everything in our culture is wired to make us think otherwise, we have enough time to do that. I have, have 86,400 seconds a day. You have 86,400 seconds a day. So the issue isn't how much time should I spend doing God's stuff? That's not the issue. That's not the question. The question is, how am I going to arrange my life? So it's a much bigger question. How am I gonna arrange my time around the task of seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? And this is where we struggle, and I'll, I'll, I'll try to use this illustration. What happens is, you know, Jesus comes along, and that's what he says, seek first my kingdom, seek first my righteousness, and then what does he promise? All these things will be added unto you but we get it backwards. We seek our life first. We think, man, I would love to seek the kingdom of God, but I got to work because you know what? I got a mortgage to pay and I got kids I'm going to have to send to college and I'm going to have to retire one day and I got a beach house I got to pay for and I got, I got to get my kids a soccer practice and we do all these things. And then as a result, and I actually wrote down on these ping pong balls, as a result, you know, I, I got here, kingdom of God, you know, we, it's like there's just, there's just not enough room in our lives for the kingdom of God. There's, not a, there's so much junk in our life. There's so much busyness in our life. There's so many distractions in our life. There's just not enough time for the kingdom of God. But if we were to take what Jesus said literally, and we thought, the first thing I'm going to do with my life is seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Watch this. Then all of a sudden, you know, God knows we have to pay our mortgage. God knows we have to get ready for retirement. God knows we have to be able to pay our tuition so our kids can go to school. And what's amazing is if we do it God's way first, God says, I understand it. I got you back. But to do this, see, to do this is tough. And so we ask ourselves, how do I do this? I mean, do I trust God really enough that I can seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and then he will take care of all these things and the culture that I live in knows that I need to be taken care of. How do I actually do this? The bottom line is, you know what? I do whatever it takes to do this. I do whatever it takes. I got to figure that out because see, I only have a little bit of time and I have a little bit of opportunity. So here's the big question we have to think about. Are we living our life 
with that kind of urgency, with that sense of urgency. Here's maybe a better question. Where and how are you investing your life? So that's a better question. Are you investing your life in God's kingdom? Or are you investing your life in this life? Because all you have to do is read the gospels. And Jesus made it very, very plain. He says, listen, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower, if you're a disciple, one day you're gonna stand before God and you're gonna give an account of your life, of how you used your life, how you used your time. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter three. He says, after we get to heaven, we're gonna stand before God and we're gonna be rewarded according to how we actually used our life, how we invested it in God's kingdom. Now, let me just give you a heads up. Investing in this life is like investing in a company that you know ahead of time is gonna go out of business. I mean, yeah, you may be paid a dividend here and there, but eventually, see, eventually you're gonna lose all of your investment. Eventually, you're gonna lose all of your capital because eventually you're gonna die. As I say, the statistics on death are quite impressive. One out of one person dies. It's just a matter of time, right? So we have to, as Christians, we, we either embrace that and believe that, or we don't embrace it and we don't believe it, but we have to get to the place we understand. You know what, there is more to life than just living and working and trying to grab a little vacation here and there and maybe getting over to the lake or getting down to the beach and just trying to make it through the day until we eventually die. I'm telling you something, if that's all there is to life, then we ought to be depressed. If that's all there is to life, you know what, we ought to be disgusted. If that's all there is to life, we ought to be discouraged. If that's all there is to life, we should probably take Xanax at communion. That's probably what we should do. I mean, if that's all there is to life. But here's the good news. Jesus Christ came to give us what? He came to give us life and to give it more what? John 10, he came to give us life more abundantly. In other words, Jesus said, I came to give you the opportunity to be able to not just go to heaven, but to live and experience a life that will have incredible meaning and purpose. I'm gonna actually partner with you. You're gonna partner with me to change the world, to bring my kingdom to this earth. But I gotta tell you, if we're gonna experience that, here's the tough part. We have to adjust the here and now in light of what we know is to come. See, I, I don't know a lot about the future. None of us really know what the stock market will do next week. We don't know what the housing market will do. We don't know what the job market will do. We have, no, we have no idea. We don't know about any of those things. We don't know that. But what we do know, what we do know, if you're a Christian, is that one day we're going to stand before God and we're going to give an account of how we used our life. So understand, God is looking for people who are willing to look beyond this life and then make adjustments in this life in light, in light of what they know, what we know is to come. That's easy to say. That's tough to do. It's tough to do. It's tough to make those kinds of decisions. When I was younger and out of college and Laura and I were fresh married, in fact, I was a youth pastor, um, I was really... I don't know why, but I really got into rock climbing. And so I would go out to Joshua Tree and, and there's a lot of rocks out there and cliffs and these are pretty sheer. And, and literally we wouldn't even take tents. We would sleep on the desert floor and we would just rock climb. And I can remember in the process of rock climbing, there was a technical term called a commitment move. And, and the commitment move determined whether or not you were actually gonna succeed in completing the climb. 
And it usually came when there was very, very little to hold on to. And there weren't a lot, I mean, footholds were basically non-existence. And when you get there, especially if you're 100 feet up in the air, 150 feet up in the air, I mean, you, there's just this tendency. You begin to freeze, you begin to panic. And if you stay in that condition, see, the longer you stay there, your muscles, they begin to cramp up. Exhaustion uh, begins to set. And there was a number of times, I'm not trying to gross you out. I mean, I, I lost my breakfast hanging on the side of a cliff thinking, how in the world am I going to get from this place to where that is? And am I, do, do I, am I willing to make the commitment to make that move? And in that moment, see, you either, you either go for it or you quit. You either make the commitment move or you bail out and you figure out, how do I get back down this mountain? Now, here's my big question I want to challenge you with this weekend. What's keeping you from making the commitment move? To seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. What's keeping you from making the commitment move that you trust God, that you're going to begin to invest your life in the lives of others? Because I'm telling you, if you're a Christian now, if you're here and you're just checking out Christianity and you're not even sure if you believe any of this stuff, that's okay. You're off the hook this weekend. But if you're a Christian and you don't have time to invest in God's kingdom and his righteousness, if you're a Christian and you don't have time to invest your life in the lives of others, See, you're either using the time that God has given you the wrong way or you're lazy. You're lazy. So what are you missing out on because you're too slothful to go for it? See, you can't make the commitment move. I want to give you a couple of practical things that you can begin to do to, to make a, a difference immediately. One would be simple as this. Start moving. This is what I call low-hanging fruit. And what I mean by that, there are several moves you can make that could make a difference in the kingdom of God through Hope Community Church. For example, when you come to church, I know a lot of you love to grab those end seats. Why don't you find someone to sit beside? Instead of leaving a seat, what if you sat beside someone that you never met before? How freaky is that, right? Right. We're like, oh, I don't know them. I'm not going to sit beside them. I'm going to leave a seat. It's church people. They're not going to bite you. And if they do, we have really good insurance. It's not going to be that big of a deal, right? Right. But what if we started acting like the church? Okay. And we just, we just made a little move, said, I'm just going to move in. I'm going to move in. I'm going to meet this person. Right. Here's another one. You can start parking offside. You could do that. If you've been here for more than two months, you probably should park offside. Because the reality is if somebody shows up for the first time and there's not a parking, plot, parking lot place and, and we say, hey, it's full, you know what they do? They leave and they don't come back. They don't come back. So you can ride the shuttle. Shuttles are cool. Disney has shuttles. Kids love shuttles. Great things happen on shuttles. I'm telling you, one time we, at the Raleigh campus, we had a family get on a shuttle thinking they were going to the state fair. <laughs> and they ended up at Hope. They've been here ever since. They love Hope Community Church, right? Right. And we don't even have goats. And I mean, I mean that's, that's a cool thing, right? We have a couple at our church. They met on the shuttle, started dating, fell in love, got married, had beautiful kids. Now cool stuff happens on the shuttle. But you could, it's a little move that you can make. It's a little inconvenience that you could make that allows God to do something. 
Some of our campuses, you know, your Sunday mornings are packed and there's nowhere to sit. We have Saturday night services. You know, at Apex, we have Sunday night services. If you travel, you can get back on Sunday and go to Apex, but you can make that move to another service so you could free up a seat for people who are gonna come for the first time on, listen, our prime time is 9.30 and 11.15 on Sunday. And I'm just telling you, if people, that's when our visitors are gonna show up. And if there's no parking place and if there's no seat, they're not coming back. So you can begin by just start moving. I want to remind you guys, I remind, this is not a country club. This is not a place where like membership has its privileges, right? In fact, if you're a Christian and you're looking for a place just to be entertained, to be a spectator, this is not the right church for you. We are on a mission to change the world. So I would encourage some of you, start moving. Be a little inconvenienced. You know what? It actually, it actually will build character. It actually will build character. So that would be my first point. There's some low-hanging fruit, but that's the way that you can begin to make a difference in the kingdom of God, just around Hope Community Church. Here's a second one. Start serving. Let me give you a definition of serving. See a need and meet it. See a need and meet it. And you know what a lot of people say when it comes to serving? Well, you know, I'd like to serve, but my spiritual gift is this. And uh, since that role is not available, I don't serve. Well, you know what? Jesus saw a need when he saw disciples with a bunch of dirty feet and he got on his hands and knees and washed their feet. I don't think that was Jesus' spiritual gift, to be honest with you. But he saw a need and he said, I'll meet that need. You know what Jesus said about serving? He said, hey guys, want to be great? Be a servant. Then he said this, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. I came to lay down my life to be a ransom. That's why I came. So he says, if you want to be great, start serving. Now let me ask, when we talk about serving, everybody goes, ooh. But listen, we're not asking you to give 40 hours a week. You got 168. Could you give one? I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe could you give two? Right. Do you know that for, we have 1,100 people, this is just across the Apex, Raleigh, and Morrisville campus. We have 1,100 people that serve at our three campuses right here every weekend, every weekend. That's a lot of people. And I'm like, some of you are like, that's awesome. The problem is we need almost 1,425 people every weekend to serve. So we got room for over 300 people to get involved and make a difference every weekend. And I always say the cool thing about a big church like Hope, you know, Church I grew up in, you, you, you changed diapers or you taught Sunday school, right? That was pretty much it. I started teaching Sunday school when I think I was in the eighth grade, you know? So they let me do that, right? But at a church like Hope, man, listen, you, you, you can work in a coffee shop. You can work in a food pantry. You can work in the kitchen. You can be a greeter. I mean, you can smile, can't you? You can do that. I bet you could do that. You could be in parking lot and tend it and you get to wear one of those fashionable orange vests. That's cool, right? Shuttle driver. I mean, you know, when you bring back the bumper crops, the bags of food, there are people that collect them and deliver them to under-resourced areas where they make a difference. We have people that volunteer to work with lights, sound, you know, cameras, music. Did you know it takes almost 800 volunteers every week to make Kid City go? But I checked this week with the director of Kid City. You know how many we had last week? 520. That means we're not operating at that optimum level where we really could be impacting kids' lives. Let me tell you something, 98% of people who accept Christ do so under the age of 18. 
Did you know that? That's why Kids City is so important. That's why HSM and middle school ministries is so important. More people were going to be reached at that age for the kingdom of God than any other age. But we got to see that need. We've got to see that opportunity. And I know what some of you are thinking, because, man, I've been doing this a long time. I know what some of you are thinking right now. Well, Mike, if you, if you just knew how important I was, you know, because I'm just so important. In fact, Mike, I am confident when I stand before God and God says, why didn't you serve? And when I tell him how important I am, he goes, wow, you are the exception. You're great and you never have to serve. You get to stand over here all by yourself, right? That's just not the way it works. Let me tell you something. You know what I found about important people? The more important you are and the more busy you are, the more you get done. I'll give you an example. I got a neighbor, married, got three kids, between the age of eight and 13, right? CEO of two companies. And he volunteers on Sunday morning as a small group leader for five-year-olds at our Apex campus. And then comes one afternoon a week to tutor kids after school that need help with their homework. And it's amazing what that guy can get done because busy people get stuff done. Because see, they use their time wisely. And you know what he wants to talk about more than anything else when I see him out in the driveway? About what happened with one of those five-year-olds in that small group on a Sunday morning at Kid City. He just lights up. I got another friend, Tim. Tim also lives in my neighborhood. Tim's funny, his wife signed him up for work for Kid City. He was so angry. She signed him up to be a small group leader. You know what Tim does? He's a big shot at sass. In fact, one time I said, what do you do? And he says, I make PowerPoints. I'm like, God, that's depressing. I'll give you a job. I hope making top PowerPoints, right? You know what I do? But no, actually, what he, he was being humble. He pretty much trains the sales staff who go out and sell their software all over the world. Listen, Tim flies on SAS's private jets. That's how important he is. In fact, last weekend he was flying and he took a picture of the two pilots who were flying the jet, flying him down to Florida. Both pilots go to Hope. You know, he was so excited about that. But Tim, you know what Tim does? He's a small group leader, five-year-old kids, Sunday morning. And he loves to tell the story. He doesn't love to tell it, but he tells a story with such passion of a little boy in his classroom who the day before, on a Saturday before Sunday, his dad, who was a tree trimmer, fell out of a tree and, and died. And his opportunity to stand there. And I got to tell you, we need men. I'm tired of this culture we're developing where men are just such bad guys. We need men to take a stand in the church. I thank you ladies for leading us, but men, we need you to do some leading too. And I was so cool. I, after one of our services, I saw one of my neighbors. He's just a macho guy. And he says, man, I just went and signed up to serve in Kid City. We need that. But we need you to sign up. And, and I got to tell you, you know why Tim does that? Because he knows SAS is a great company and he knows it pays the bills. But you know what he, he'll tell you? A lot more rewarding sitting on the floor with those five-year-olds, knowing you're making a difference in their life, see? That's what we're talking about. By the way, one of the pilots, I told you they both got, one of the pilots operates a camera at the Sunday afternoon services at our Apex campus. So even a guy who's flying all over the world with Mr. Goodnight can find time to be a servant to make a difference in the kingdom of God. But the bottom line is, is you got to start serving. Because here's the thing, this is what you need to understand. You say, well, why? Boy, you sound like you guys really need something. No, no, you need to serve for your own sake because it can change your life. Watch this video. So when I think back to when I first started serving, I was definitely serving because Mike asked me to serve. Not directly, but when he was 
referring to the freeloaders in the room, I got the message, it's time to serve. And when I started serving, I didn't believe in God. I didn't know Jesus. And so we were just serving, my wife and I, because um, we had been attending Hope for maybe a year, almost right away. There was something about serving that really softened my heart. What I have found through that serving and, and getting this relationship with Christ and this trust that Jesus has got my back, I, I just have so much more joy in my life. Maybe that's what the serving thing is. You've got to be willing to give of yourself uh, before you can really understand what a relationship with God is all about because He has given up so much for us. See, it's life-changing. So why is this so important? I'll tell you why. Because somewhere right now, there's a family in our community and they don't give a rat's behind about God or Jesus or the church. From their perspective, you know, they got it all together. In their mind, church is for losers. The only thing they like about church is while we're in church, it keeps us off the golf courses and out of the restaurants, you know, but they're not big fans of church other than that. But this is what's going to happen. Somebody in our church is going to meet this family and they're going to invite them to church. And they're going to have an incredible, relevant church to invite them in. And, and, and a church where they can be loved the minute they walk in the door. They can be accepted the minute they walk in the door. And you know what that family's going to say? No, we're not church people. We're really not interested. Thank you very much. But then the, I can promise you, this is what's going to happen one day because it happens to all of us. They're going to have a crisis in their life. And some family from Hope's going to reach out to them and invite them and they're going to say yes. And because of what we do every weekend, we have the potential to be instruments that God uses to change their lives. It'll change the way they raise their kids. It'll change the way they handle their finances. It'll change the way they do marriage. It could actually impact the next generation. See, there's, there's some young singles out there, right? There's some millennials out there. There's some high school and middle schoolers out there, and they've done everything they can to feel better, better about themselves. And it's just not happening. And I got to tell you, the sense of despair among the young people in our country right now is at a crisis. I'm telling you that. But you know what's going to happen? Another young person is going to invite them to hope. And they're going to have a totally different, different take on life. And that person, that young person is going to hear the story and they're going to respond to the gospel and their life is going to be changed and it's going to be because somebody cared. Somebody cared. And you say, my, how do you know that? I know that because, see, that's the kind of story that I hear every week. Let me tell you something. If you're not investing your life, you're just spending your life. Let me say it another way. If you're not investing your life, as a Christian, you're wasting your life. So my challenge to you this weekend is make the commitment move. Begin to serve others and see what God does in your own life. It will blow your mind. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've given us this opportunity to serve one another. And I think of what Paul said in Philippians chapter 2. We actually have to put the needs of others above our own needs before we can do that. And right now, there are, yeah, we... We need people to serve at Hope. People at Hope need to serve for their own well-being. But yet at the same time, right now, there are husbands who need to go home and 
serve their wives. Wives who need to go home and learn how to serve their husbands. Parents who need to learn how to serve their children and children who need to learn how to be servants to their parents. And I pray that you will help us develop a mindset of being a servant where we see a need and we meet it. And Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to be partnering with you to reach the triangle and change the world. I'm excited to see what you're going to do. In your name we pray. Amen.